from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and at the top of it, it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and into the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and you will keep and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He came to the name of the place, that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luez at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for you, a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give a full tent to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that God, it, um, that it's, there's power in it. We just pray, God, as Ryan uh, preaches your word, that you, we would hear from you. And um, may we, uh, we just be blessed today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Y'all can be seated. Hey, how we doing? <laughs> I'm almost convinced. You guys are so funny. Well, here, here's a conversation starter. Anybody have weird dreams? Somebody raising your hand. Yeah, you got weird dreams, right? I have weird dreams. I would trade all the weird dreams I've ever had for this one, right? I mean, what, what an amazing dream that Jacob has. Here, here's this guy that is on the run. He's literally running from the consequences of his sin. And then he finds out that God's there in his midst when he's on the run, right? It's this beautiful promise. It, remi it reminds me of, uh, of what Jesus says to us at the end of the Great Commission. You know, that, that passage where, that we use when we talk about living on mission and global missions. Thank you so much, Zach. I really appreciate you. Hey, let's give it up for Zach. Let's give it up for Zach. Chief servant right here. What a, what a guy. Back to the Great Commission. So it reminds me of this, you know, this passage we talk about going out into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. And then there's this great promise that we always forget at the end where Jesus says, oh, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the promise that God makes to Jacob right here, the promise that he 
will be with him. That he would never stop bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, even though he would go and ascend to be at his father's right hand. So we don't have a lot of time to waste on the intro, so we're just going to jump in now. Let me share the big idea with you. And I've got four, four observations, four points that I see just kind of oozing out of Genesis 28 for us this morning. Big idea is this, is that the promise of grace to us is that heaven will not stop invading the earth until Jesus returns. Can somebody say amen? That's good news, right? That it doesn't matter what you brought in here. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday or when you were a kid. The king, if you belong to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven will continue to invade earth as long as we live in this world. So the four, kind of the four points, I guess you could say, uh, for today's message are really just kind of four words uh, or phrases. The first one is the run. The second one is the ladder. The third one is the promise. And the fourth one is the response. So let's dig into the run. Here's what we see in Genesis 28, uh, 10 and 11, that God's everlasting grace outruns our fugitive hearts. What I mean by fugitive is someone who has escaped and is in hiding, right? Um, <clears throat> we all have fugitive instincts. Did you know that? Just think about your own life. I, I've, I've, got, I've had a fugitive heart for as long as I can remember. And some of these things you guys have heard before, maybe some of them you haven't. But, um, you know, e- even like when I was a 10-year-old and I got a dirt bike, and, um, and I knew that I wasn't supposed to ride on Highway 151 in Larchburg, Kentucky. And I did anyway. And lo and behold, the sheriff passes me while I'm driving. And what does he do? He sees a 10-year-old on a motorcycle on the highway. He flips around, starts chasing me. I just happened to think, you know, I bet I could hide behind my friend Steven's house. And then the cop will just pass by. And so I did. I got away with it that day. And I'd love to tell you that that's the last time my heart ran. The, the, the last time that my, in fact, my mom can attest to this. She's in here. When I was 18 years old, I was like, uh, I want to get a motorcycle because that's every mom's dream for their 18-year-old son, right? <clears throat> and mom's like, I don't think you should do that. And I was like, well, I, you know, okay, I'm going to get one anyway. And literally, it was like 10-year-old Ryan all over again. I'm driving down Interstate 64. Police officer pulls out behind me. I was driving fast, but not too fast. You know what I mean? And, uh, and the police officer pulls out behind me. His lights are on. I see him. And I have this moment. It's this moment that maybe other people have. Maybe, maybe this is a confessional for me. Uh, I think, why stop when I could run? <laughs> why stop when I could run? And I, you know, get off the exit and, 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 uh, and get away from the police that day. And I don't know, I don't know what it is about my sinful nature, uh, but I think we all kind of have that tendency to say, you know, not, maybe not physically for you, but, but why get caught when you could get away with it, Right? Why stop when you could, you could run? Um, and it's, it's, it's taken me a long time to believe in my heart um, that it's better to suffer the consequences of sin and the light among the family of God than to be on your own on the run. But here's the deal about the Lord, is the Lord knows that you have a fugitive heart. He knows that I have a fugitive heart. And wherever we're running to, we find him there. Genesis 28, 10, and 11. Listen, listen carefully here at what Jacob, you remember Jacob had just deceived his brother Esau. I stole him the blessing and Esau makes a vow. What's he say? I'm going to kill him. As soon as dad dies, the funeral, it's going to be a one-two punch. I'm going to kill him. So Jacob, 
is sent out by his mother and father, kind of the last unified decision they make in the Bible to send him away to, to Uncle Laban uh, to find a wife from their homeland. And so uh, he's, he's about three days into his journey now, uh, all alone by himself in the middle of the wilderness. Verse 10 says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night uh, because the sun had set. And, uh, you know, times were tough, so he actually used a stone for a pillow. I don't know if you've been there before, but that's where he was. And he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. He's on the run, right? He's on the run. He's, he's chasing, uh, to some degree, uh, what God has for him, but he's still on the run from his brother, right? Um, <clears throat> so my question to you is, like, when you think about the places you run, maybe you run, maybe you don't run physically, but you run, your heart runs from God right? Your spirit runs from God. What is it that you're running to and what is it that you're running from when you're on the run? I, I think we're, we're, running, we're running to the, 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 the false promises and delight that this world can bring. And we're running from the consequences of sin. Because we don't really believe that God's presence can heal us. <laughs> we think it's, it's going to condemn us, right? That's why we run from God. But the only thing that can change a fugitive heart is God's presence. It's the only thing. So the promise of his presence comes to Abraham, it comes to Isaac, and, and now to Jacob. And if you go and you do a survey of the Bible, and you look at all of the Psalms, uh, all, of the, um, all of the prophetic literature in the scriptures, there's this phrase, it, it really is, a, I think it's more prevalent in the Bible than the God of uh, Abraham or the God of Isaac is there's this refrain in the Bible that where where we're called to remember the God of Jacob, and out of all of the you know the patriarchs, Jacob is just he's just the dirtiest one, right? I mean he's the one that you're like really God. I mean like let's remember the God of Abraham, you know, not the God of Jacob. He's the the, the deceiver, right? I mean he's he's so dirty, so filthy, and and yet God calls us to remember the God of Jacob. Because we can identify with Jacob, can't we? If we're honest with ourselves, we can identify with Jacob. He, you know, in this instance, he's a fugitive. He's deceived his burly brother and his chosen father, and he's stolen this, stolen this blessing. And Jacob is not looking for God. He's running from the consequences of his sin. <clears throat> and this, this is why uh, he is stunned. I would even say shell-shocked to find God in this place when he is on the run. You know, it'd be like, here's what it'd be like. It'd be like, let's just say you're a teenager and you sneak out of your house, which I know none of the teenagers in this church would ever do, right? Amen? You wouldn't do that. You sneak out of your house, you're like, I'm gonna go get dinner with my friends. I'm gonna go and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go to Waffle House two o'clock in the morning, it's gonna be so fun. And uh, it'd be like getting there to the restaurant and, real, and, and, uh, and showing up and Jesus being at the table already. Right? I mean, he's, he's, he's made the reservation. He's already ordered the appetizers. Waffle House doesn't have appetizers, but work with me. Um, and, and, and he's there. He's already in your midst. He was waiting for you. This is what it would have been like for Jacob. He was doing something that was just riddled with all of the sin. And he he's in the middle of the wilderness on, on, on the way to Uncle Laban's house. And there God meets him. And he's stunned by God's presence. I don't want to belabor the point anymore, but how do you run from God? How are you running from God right now? 
where is your heart? It's just, it's not looking for God's presence to bring healing to your life, to bring wholeness. Maybe you're running from opportunities to be reconciled to other people. You just rather cancel them and forget about it and move on. Maybe you're, maybe you're running um, through some kind of concealed shaming sin that has just enslaved you. I don't know what it is for you. You just don't want to confront it. What would it look like for you to cling to the truth that there's hope in the light even when you're on the run and that God is, God is already where you are going, <laughs> that he's there, he's there to meet you? Because that's where God meets each and every one of us as spiritual fugitives. In fact, he doesn't meet you if your heart is in any other place. Like we're, when we're running from God, God finds us. Jacob wasn't looking for God, but God found him. And he absolutely changed his life. What if Jesus has the power to turn fugitive hearts into communing hearts? To turn selfish hearts into selfless Hearts, because the, the, re, the reality for us is that we can't outrun grace. We think that we're good at hide and go seek, but we're like that little two-year-old, you know, that you can see behind the curtain, their toes are underneath it and they're giggling, right? That's what it's like when we try to conceal our sin, right? God is already there. He's in our midst. Okay, so let's keep going. The ladder, this is, the, this is what you think about when you hear about Genesis 28. Here's what I notice about this, this ladder, this picture, is that it's this, it's this picture of God's relationship with his broken creation. That, that God is tethered to our sinful world because of his love. He wants Jacob to know that right off the bat. Let's read it again. Uh, verse 12, so Jacob is out in the middle of the, you know, the wilderness uh, at Luez, and he, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder or steps, it can be translated either way, set up on the earth, so where we are, and the top of it reached heaven where God is. And behold, the angels of God where they were ascending and, 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 and descending in this dream. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So let, let's, let's, let's settle in on this for a second. So this vision of the ladder is a pathway between heaven, which is the place where God dwells, and earth, which is the place where we dwell as his image bearers. And, you know, let's, let's think kind <clears> of, <throat> let's think about what, what happens at the end of time for us, right? When believers pass on, their souls go to be with Jesus immediately. Their souls go to be with Jesus in heaven. Uh, but when the new heavens and the new earth are created, which will happen at the final judgment, believers will be given resurrected bodies, and we will spend eternity not in heaven, but on the new earth with Jesus. Did you know that? Most Christians don't believe that. Most Christians don't know that. Here's what, um, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Revelation 21 and just look at it together. You know, because the reality is, is that we won't need the sun, we won't need the moon, we won't need the stars because Jesus will be the light and we'll be with him. We will dwell eternally in this new Jerusalem that he's been preparing for us together. And, and if we pass on to be with the Lord before Jesus returns, like many that we know have, we will be with him in the spirit and we will join him when he brings the new Jerusalem, the new earth down out of heaven. We will join him, we'll be with him and we'll be caught up in the air, we'll be given these new resurrected bodies as 1 Corinthians 15 says. Heaven, or the new earth will be a very physical place and we will be perfected people, image bearers of God. 
The Bible tells us that when Jesus' work on earth is finished, we will spend eternity in new resurrected bodies on the new earth with him forever. Listen, Roman, uh, Revelation 21, starting in verse 10. And he carried, this is, so this is the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, has this revelation on the island of Patmos when, when he's been exiled. Jesus meets him there and he shows him what's to come. And, and the book of Revelation is hard for us to interpret. It's apocalyptic. I'm not, I don't, we don't have time to go there today. Probably when I'm 50, maybe I'll preach through the book of Revelation. But anyway, that's what Randy Pope told me. He's like, wait 25 years. Um, <laughs> anyway, but there's a lot, there's a lot. The book of Revelation in the first chapter, it says we'll be blessed by reading it. I want to be blessed. And so let's, let's study it this morning. Here's what, here's what he says about this, at the end of time, this new earth uh, that, that's going to be, that's going to be created. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clearest crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And I saw no temple, significant. I saw no temple. What is the temple? The temple is the house of God. What does Jacob call Luez? Bethel, the house of God. He sees no, no, no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. <clears throat> and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the picture of the new Jerusalem. This is the picture of, of believers dwelling in God's perfected, our, our perfected body dwelling in his perfect presence. And it's important to understand this because what we see in the pages of the Bible is the perfect earth in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Kingdom of God starts in this perfect garden. Then at the end of the Bible, we see this city, this perfected city, this new earth. And the pages in between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 are the coming of the kingdom to earth, church. And this is the vision that Jacob has, that God doesn't leave us, he doesn't forsake us, that heaven is always invading earth when we live as his beloved children. And this is why Jesus actually, he tells us to pray for this, right? Brian, Brian prayed us through the Lord's prayer this morning. But why would Jesus tell us to pray for the kingdom of God to come to earth if it wasn't already coming in our midst? Sure, it's not coming perfect, but it's coming. God is on the move. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's always been tethered to the world, to his creation, to us. And this vision that Jacob has is reassurance that God is tethered to his creation even while redemption is still being accomplished in this world. And it's this amazing truth. And not only that, what's up with these angels, right? There's a lot of bad theology about angels in the world. There's a lot of bad books about them. I would encourage you to read what the Bible says about angels. And I'll just kind of give you a brief kind of overview of what that is. That, you know, God, 
He's not only making these promises, but he's sending help for believers while we wait for the fullness of his presence to come. Um, so what are these angels and what are they, what are they doing? Uh, well, the, the, the vision of these angels, that they're helpers, that they are ascending to the throne of heaven with human wants and desires and needs, right? Prayer. And they are descending with power, protection, and provision in response to these prayers. And we know that God hears every prayer, that there's no such thing as a prayer that God doesn't hear an answer. Sometimes we don't like the answer, we can't hear the answer, but God hears. And we know that God keeps our prayers. The book of Revelation, I think it's in chapter four, verse, or, or chapter five, where it talks about how our prayers are like incense that he keeps. God hears our prayer. And these angels are, are, are created, their entire purpose is to help you follow Jesus. God loves you so much that he has this entire other created order to help you follow Jesus. Look at, listen to what the book of Hebrews says. Uh, uh, chapter one, verse 13. And to which one of the angels, as he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your, your feet. He's, he's quoting, I think, Psalm 110 from David. And then he kind of gives, gives us a peek behind the curtain about angels and their purpose. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Isn't that amazing that God loves us so much that he has created beings to help us follow Jesus, that he hears our prayers, that he keeps them, and then he answers our prayers. That's the vision that Jacob has, is this God who's not detached, he's not a deistic, he's not in some faraway place, but he's among us. And he wants us to know that because that changes everything about how we live on this earth. Now, if you think back to Genesis chapter 11, there was another scene where some people tried to build some steps to go to heaven, right? You remember that one? Tower of Babel, right? What's the difference in Jacob's ladder and the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel started with who? It started with man. Let us, let us make for ourselves a great, I'm paraphrasing here, a great city and, 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 and you know, build ourselves up to God. Well, obviously that never works, that they've, they've highly underestimated their sinful condition and, and highly also underestimated God's majesty and his holiness, right? Well, the difference in what happens in Genesis chapter 11 and what happens in Genesis chapter 8 is that God is the one that initiates it. He's always the one that initiates the relationship. God meets Jacob while he's on the run and asleep. He's isolated, asleep in the wilderness, sleep. I mean, his life is so bad that he's sleeping on a rock, right? Isn't that the picture of how God meets each and every one of us? In our most vulnerable places. Sometimes I, you know, I meet with people and I think about my own life and I think, you know, they're not ready to meet with God yet. They're not the end of themselves yet. But I think this is, this is a picture of what it looks like to have a heart that's ready to receive the kingdom of God. No protection, the walls have dropped in your heart and you're ready for God's presence to come alive in your life through faith in Jesus and the power of the Spirit. That's the picture that we see God giving Jacob. And his life won't be perfect. It's actually gonna get pretty messy next chapter. So buckle up. But that's when we're ready to hear from God. Man's way of connecting earth to heaven is trying to build ourselves a city to get there. God's way is by coming to meet with us. Now, the way that God has come to meet with us has come at incredible cost to him. 
So let's look a little bit more about what this ladder means. There's this promise, right? This is our third point here, that God's, and, here, and here's kind of the picture of how this all happens. How do we get this relationship with God and his presence? That God's son becomes a fugitive to save fugitives like us. Let me read the text, and I want to, I want to connect it to Jesus uh, as well. Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder, and he said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land that you're lying on, I will give to you and your offspring. In other words, you won't be on the run forever. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and will spread above, you know, to the north, south, east, west. And then he, so this is a promise that he's heard before, right? He's heard it from, from his grandpa, from his dad. Um, they haven't seen all the fruition of it or even close to the fruition of it, but it's a promise. And then he, he adds, kind of tacks on to the promise here. And he says, behold, I'm with you, Jacob. And I will keep you wherever you go. You don't have to worry about Esau. You don't have to worry about Uncle Laban and all the things he's going to do to you. But I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. In other words, you can't wiggle out of my grip, Jacob. You can't wiggle out. And and Jacob, like when we look at this character, the only... (laughs) Jacob's greatness can only be linked to God's grace. Like there's, there's nothing to pull off in and of himself, right? There's, there, there's no way he could hide behind his own self-righteousness. It's all of God's grace. And that's the picture of this ladder. There's, there's no confusion here. The promise that Jacob makes, um, <clears throat> the promise that God makes to Jacob is that the world will be saved through his life and through his family. And uh, a security of this, he promises that he's gonna be with him forever. But, but, as he thinks about his life, I would invite you to think about yours. It would be hard to trust this, right? It'd be hard to trust this promise. I mean, how in the world can we get to the end of our lives and remember the horror of our sin and to somehow believe in faith that God has forgotten that? I think that's what keeps us kind of tied up, honestly, is, is, is the fact that when we think about our lives, we think about, if I were to, if I were to ask you, you know, your story, and if the walls were to come down, what would you say, you know, you're standing before God is? And you would, you, would, you would doubt for a second at least whether God's promise is true or not. And I think, I think Jacob, you know, he, he, maybe he wrestled with that too. But it's because God sent his son to be a homeless fugitive in this world that we could know his heart and be saved by his grace. Jesus was at the top of the ladder when his father in heaven was sending the angels to and fro to the earth. Jesus was at the top of the ladder when his father spoke to Jacob and hundreds and hundreds of years later, God would send Jesus in the world to become the ladder church, to become the only way. Listen to what John 1.51 says as Jesus is calling Nathanael to follow him. Here's what, here's what the scripture says, uh, that Jesus says to Nathanael. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is giving this picture to Nathaniel about who he is and what he's come to do in the world. That every place that Jesus Christ reigns is the new Bethel, right? Is the new house of God. That Jesus is the ladder and he climbed down into our sinful mess and was forsaken by his father so that our access to our father in heaven will never be restricted again, church. That ladder is wide open. That access is wide 
open for us if we will receive Jesus by faith. But I fear that even as we, as we live as, as believers in this world, that we still try to build our own t- our babbles to get to the Lord. The access is wide open to our Father in heaven. And my question to you before we land this plane here is, is your access to the Father, his promise, his grace, does it seem interrupted this morning? Does it seem like you're just, you're just hitting a brick wall? You're just caught up in your own stuff and that you don't experience this communion that leads Jacob to worship. And the question that I have for you, if that's where you're at this morning, is why? What is it that's interfering? What is it that's in the way of you having this full access to your Father in heaven through Jesus becoming this ladder that you access through prayer day in, day out? What is it for you? Could it be that you've got a little more fugitive nature still running inside of you and it's keeping you from running to Jesus? Let's look at Jacob's response here because I think it's, it's amazing what happens because Jacob, uh, when, when he meets the Lord um, in a really rough spot in his life, it, it turns him from being a grasper to being a giver. And that's what grace does is it, Grace changes us from being graspers, graspers of money, graspers of possessions, graspers of relationships, to being to, to giving, to living generous lives. When it comes to that, let's and I really see really two places that Jacob is almost immediately realigned with the Lord on. It's it's uh, in his theology of God's presence. We could say it's it's. He's, I mean, you, you read this, he's like surprised, like God, you're here. Like I didn't see that one coming, you know. But the other, the other part of it is, is that there's this kind of realignment of his theology of really stewardship and what God's come to do uh, in and through his life. So let me read just these final six verses uh, again to remind us of what's going on. Jacob uh, awakes from his dream and he says, um, surely the Lord is in this place. And guess what? I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this? place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head, and he set, up for, uh, set it up for a pillar and poured, poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luez at, at first, and Jacob made a vow. He, he responded, church. He responded to God's presence in his life. And he says, If God will be with me and keep me in the way that I'll go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar, it shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. There was this response that he has. So let's look at this first, this reality, this this realigned theology of God's presence. I, I, you know, it's, it would be interesting to do a Bible study on like when God shows up when people aren't expecting it, kind of what the response is, right? It's like almost always fear, right? And, and, uh, and I think that's right. You know, this godly fear when we're in a right relationship with him, this, you know, woe is me, Jer- um, Isaiah 6 kind of a passage, right? I'm a, I'm a sinful man. I dwell among an unclean people. Uh, but also at the end of time, when Jesus shows up, 
the scripture says that people are going to wish that mountains would fall on top of them when they don't belong to him. When you encounter God through his spirit, you have to respond one way or the other. There's no such thing as just being aloof to the presence of God. And so Jacob says, wow, the Lord's in this place. I mean, you think about this. He's away from his chosen family in the middle of this God-forsaken land on the way to see his uncle. He's going to do a bunch of bad things to him. And he didn't know the Lord on that level before. He knew that the Lord was with, with Abraham and, and with Isaac, even though Isaac didn't really act like it. He, he knew that God was there, but he didn't know that God would meet him in the wilderness. He thought that the, the Lord was just in the places of, of his obedience, not his sin. Church, he's in the places of our sin too. Do you know that? So when we see Jacob recounting his steps, he's, he's looking at things differently now because he realizes that God hasn't abandoned him. And he's thinking of living differently, responding differently. If God is with me, even when I'm on the run, I want to remember this, he says, because it's probably not going to be the last time I run. So what's he do? He, he sets up an altar. He uses that, that, uh, that stone that he was sleeping on, and he builds an altar with it because he wants to remember that God's with him even when he's on the run. And he worships God. He wants to call this place Bethel because it's the house of God. We see these really realities of grace. I mean, because you could look at this, this vow that he makes as almost like a quid pro quo, like a conditional covenant, but it's really not. He, he, he's, recounting, he's recounting what's happened. He says, if God will watch over me, if he'll give me food and clothing, which in the Bible are the basic provisions. Like if you have food and clothing, you are blessed by God. Not many of us live like that. Like we're disappointed if we just have food and clothing, right? He says, if God will give me food and clothing, if he'll bring me home safely by not letting my brother murder me, if, though, if God is going to do those things through this encounter with him today, I believe that he's going to do those things, then he says, God will be my God. This stone that I slept on will now be the stone that the house of God is built on a life of faith, and I will give a tenth of everything back to the Lord. We got to remember that Jacob didn't find God. God found Jacob. And Christian, that is your story too. You might have been looking for God. Maybe you had the wrong motives. Maybe you had the right motives. But you would have never looked for him unless he first loved you through his son, unless he put that inside of you. We're not born into this world searching for God. It's only a work of the spirit that makes us seek his face. So what we see happen with Jacob is there's this like realigned theology of his stewardship, how he thinks about things, material possessions. And remember, God is tremendously interested in earth. He's tremendously interested in the things that he's made and how his people relate to them. That's the whole vision of, the, of Jacob's ladder, right? That, that he's interested in heaven invading earth in every single relationship that we have. And so, you know, it's true that we can worship in all of life and that's expected. But friends, there are also prescriptive ways in the scripture that we are called to worship. And giving is one of them. Giving is the only way that I've found to express a correct theology of stewardship. 
You can say it all day long that I understand God owns everything, but if our hands are not open, we are lying, right? We are. And so, and so he goes on to just respond to him by, by, say, by, saying, by saying that I want to give, I want to tithe, and I'm going to unpack that word. You know, and as a younger pastor, um, I hated to talk about money because I loved your approval more than I loved God's word in this area. Um, but a few years ago, I think, I think it began to hit me to the point where I've seen the harm that not teaching the full counsel of God's word can cause in the church. Um, this is the second time in the Bible that we see a patriarch pledge to give a tenth of all that he owns, all that he has. And for some reason, God set this in motion with Abraham when he met with Melchizedek after he had been given all the spoils of these kings. And, um, and, and he sets in, this, in, in motion this particular type of stewardship that the Bible calls a tithe, and that simply means a tenth, okay? And uh, it's giving 10% of, God, of what God has entrusted to you back to God. An offering in the Bible is, is something that would be on top of a tithe for various festivals or, or seasons. Moses would go on to reinforce this um, in the law when he would say this in Leviticus 27, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, and it's holy unto the Lord. And concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. He's reiterating what God did with Abraham, what God did with Jacob. Lastly, Malachi, he would recount, he would recount this story in Jacob because he talks about the God of Jacob. And apparently as a prophet, uh, they were asking him, you know, how is it that we could repent? How is it that we could turn back to the Lord, Malachi? to frame it in our language, how is it that we could not keep running as fugitives in this world? And here's what Malachi says. He says, well, we'll, we'll uh, this is what he writes down that God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, he says, that there may be food in my house. And this is the only time, I looked it up this morning to be sure, this is the only time in the Bible, church, that God calls us to test him. Think about that. There's a lot of passages that say, don't put the Lord God to the test. He calls us to test the spirits. But in giving is the only place in the Bible that God says, test me in this. See if I'll be faithful. And he says this, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Why did God specifically specify to his people a tenth? I have no clue. He could have said a seventh, twelfth, a twentieth, ow, right? You know, he could have said any number. We have no reason to believe that the principle of the tithe for us being brought into the local storehouse has stopped. We don't see anywhere in the Bible that says, oh yeah, that was just an Old Testament thing. You know, you can forget about that now. We don't see anywhere in the Bible that, that it says that. And so for us, our theology of this is that each Christian is called to give a tenth of their income to the local storehouse. And our theology says that that is the local church. Unfortunately, tithing has lost the intent of its meaning. Instead, what most people think about tithing, they think about, 
let me help the church pay their bills. That's what they think about. But that's not the purpose. God will take care of the needs of his church, whether you tithe or you give or not. The tithe was instituted before there was ever a people of God. There was one man, Abraham and his family, and God said, give. Why? Because the purpose of tithing is for your soul, not the needs of the church. It has, it has at least two very important functions in your walk with Christ. The first one is this. It prevents us from having an incorrect view of stewardship. And what I would call that incorrect view is the lie of ownership. And what that means is, is that we own anything, right? See, what happens whenever our, our, our theology of stewardship as Christians is not, uh, is not put on display through giving is that we actually take the bait that we own things. And God wants to remind us that we don't owe anything, that everything is a gift from above, from the Father of lights, who loves us and entrusts us with his creation and is a reminder for us to give. That's why Abraham is like, he's like loaded after this moment where God gives him victory. And, and, and the response for him is to give. God, I gotta give, I gotta remember that it comes from your hand. The second thing is this, is that it guarantees us with the, it gives us the guarantee of this freedom that comes through depending on him alone for everything. That's, that's a couple of the things that obeying God in this area uh, opens up for us as believers. You know, Paul, Paul, you know, would say, Paul would put it like this when he was talking about the needs of the church and our response in worship. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So just like with Jesus, everything is hitting a heart level, not just a behavior level. And here's what he says about giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The Bible takes this to a whole nother level. Our Lord calls us to be generous people, to be cheerful givers, that if we are living in God's kingdom as his beloved sons and daughters, and we are not able to cheerfully give that something has gone awry in us, Something's not right. Something's off. And Jesus wants us to experience the joy of cheerfully giving. He calls us to testament it. And it's, 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 it's the, you know, so what, so what does it mean? Well, I think, I think that there's a lie that we've got to shed light on a little bit, and I've alluded to it already. But the lie that I think that we believe sometimes is that we can restrict our response and obedience to God in the area of money and it not affect our communion with God. Does that make sense? That this can be this personal private thing and the spiritual life in Christ can be this whole other thing. But God is always, he's always been embedded in the physical because they're so knit together in our lives. And, and I, as, as one of the pastors of this church, don't want to see your fellowship with God and communion with him restricted because you're grasping after material possessions. So what does it look like for you to respond to this today? 
Because God's very clear in his word on what that means for us. When God came to the nastiest of sinners in the world, one of the, ones, one of the nastiest ones the world's ever seen, Jacob, he changed him. And he changed him by his own desire to be gracious. And Jacob changed him, and we'll see as he'll continue to change in every way. My, my question to you as I wrap up here is this. Are there any ways in your life right now that you are knowingly restricting a response of grace to grace in your heart? Are there any ways that you're just throttling worship to God out of fear? Maybe you're a secret fugitive and you're running with your sin like Jacob was. And the offer stands for you today. Jesus died for fugitives like me and you. If you'll surrender to your life to him, you'll see that he's always been with us. Or maybe you've never really learned to live as a steward of God's creation. Maybe you've never given before. Maybe you've never tithed before. Maybe your parents never taught you. Maybe you've been allowing the darkness of choosing to grasp instead of give to permeate your fellowship with God. Malachi says you're a fugitive with God's possessions. The offer stands, no matter where you're at today, is to open your hand with your heart and for the first time, trust God with all the stuff that he's given to us because he wants to blow your mind with his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father uh, in heaven, ah, what an amazing story, God. Amazing story that you stand in the middle of our faithlessness and you call us to yourself and you remind us of the promises of grace, the promises that we can be forgiven, God, that our past doesn't dictate our future, that we can be made new. Father, we'll even see with Jacob, his name is changed, Lord. Lord, I, I pray, um, especially with these kind of specific things that we've talked about this morning, these responses to your grace, Lord, that you would convict us with a gentle hand today. And we would trust you. We would trust you with all that we have and all that we are, Lord. That you're worthy and you're trustworthy. So Father, as we turn to this table now, I pray that it would be just a reminder and really a bedrock for us to think about your faithfulness in. That you're the one that comes to us. You're the one that changes us. And you're the one that gives us life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.